Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Welcome to another edition of GodPod, and uh, here we are in our little cupboard where we record these events, and um, uh, today it's just uh, two people, just myself and uh, a very good friend, Nick Spencer. Um, and Nick is um, uh, the uh, Senior Fellow at Theos, which is a, um, uh, it's been a really influential um, kind of think tank uh, here in the UK, thinking about religion and politics and society. And uh, it's um, uh, wherever you're listening in the world, you may want to kind of log on to their website. There's also really good resources there thinking about um, the relationship between faith and um, public life in, in all kinds of ways. But, Theo, uh, but Nick has been involved in it for uh, many years. Um, so, Nick, welcome to um, GodPod. It's a pleasure to be here, Graham. Good. And uh, you've done a GodPod before, haven't you? I did, yeah. It's taken about seven or eight years for me to be invited back on the programme, but I'm, 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 I'm here. We're very sparing in our invitations, you know. <laughs> But actually, Nick, Nick and I do go back a long way. I, I do remember Nick when he was a, a young student many years ago. Um, and um, so we've, we've been friends ever since then, and it's great to be able to see um, what you've been doing. And over those years, uh, your time at Theos, I mean, how, how did you start with Theos? Did you got into, when you left university, did you get into thinking about this whole area of um, faith and public life? Well, not directly. As you may remember, I read English and History at university, which was tremendously stimulating, but didn't immediately prepare me for the labour market. Um, I became a a researcher, a commercial and social researcher for um, five or six years. um, And then I went to work for two small Christian think tanks. And then I was really part of the ticket that that started um, Theos back in 2005, six. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty fair to say, I mean, you're going to blush at this point, Nick, but um, uh, again, I think Nick is one of the um, really important voices thinking about uh, faith and politics and public life in, in the UK uh, at the moment. You, you've um, done a, a TV, uh, a radio series recently on um, science and religion, is that right? Mm, the Secret History of Science and Religion, that was the, the BBC's title rather than my own, but it was a three-part series exploding the idea that science and religion have always been in conflict with one another. Nothing is really further from the truth. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that's available on BBC, BBC iTunes. Um, I, not, BBC not, Sounds. That's the wrong I word. BBC Sounds. BBC is that sounds. what it is? Okay. From now until the second coming, it will be there. Very good. Yeah, it's really worth listening to, actually. I've listened to it on my regular runs up the Thames, and um, it's a really interesting um, conversation on the relationship between um, uh, religion and, and science over the past couple of hundred years so it's really good to to, to, to explore that but uh, Nick one particular area you've um, I suppose particularly focused upon over the years is the relationship between uh, religion and, and politics and you've written a number of books on on that over the years now but we wanted to focus particularly on one of them uh, today which is a, a book which um, I think you brought out a couple of years ago called The Political Samaritan um, and um uh, the subtitle is How Power Hijacked a Parable, which is a kind of intriguing little sort of um, subtext to it. So um, do you want to explain a little bit about uh, why you wrote the book, where it came from, what was the inspiration for it, and, and, and just a little bit about what, what the whole um, thrust of the book is? 
I suppose it's Deep Roots Line, a book I wrote um, six years earlier called Freedom and Order, um, which looked at the use of the Bible mm. in British political theory and life from yeah. 7th century right up to the 21st. Mm. And I noticed when writing the last chapter that the parable of the Good Samaritan was used quite a lot in the latter part of the 20th century, in an age which we are famously being secularizing and politics is you know a very long way away from its kind of high victorian um, christian um, center um, these politicians kept on referring to the parable of good samaritan and that's well, and politicians just general any politician from all different parties and different yes, sides of the across the political spectrum it's really mainstreamed by margaret thatcher um, mm. in a, a lecture she gave in 1968 um, and then um, she refers to it a few more times so 1968 quite 1968 quite yeah so she's yeah. yes that's right so it's more than 50 years ago yeah. um, now and she is not a particularly prominent politician then and yep. but she makes an, another couple of references in the late 70s when she's leader of the opposition and then once or twice um, when she's in power at the same time in the later 80s into the 90s and into the new millennium it is frequently used by backbenchers across the political mm-hmm. spectrum but also by labor politicians in a highly elusive but very regular way um it's sometimes used idiomatically uh, in terms of the way the, the phrase Good Samaritan is just simply yeah. an idiom which is shorn sure. of any content. But it's Everybody knows what the Good Samaritan it, is, exactly. kind of, these days. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and those who use the phrase don't even know necessarily where it comes from. Yeah. But it what is a Samaritan also, is. Yeah, that's right. And how Samaritans related to Jews or whatever. Uh, oh, be. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's okay. way off the radar. Yeah. But it's used more meaningfully, more intentionally, and most interestingly, it's used very prominently. It's used by prime ministers or leaders of their party or leaders of the opposition on prominent political stages mm. such as from the dispatch box or at the keynote speech at the party conference mm. those usages are not by accident mm. and it's used in radically different ways as you can imagine Jeremy Corbyn and Margaret Thatcher are not going to be preaching the same political yeah, message sure. even if they use the same parable yeah. but so Jeremy it, Corbyn has used it as he, a, he as has a, as a, he has used it okay. yeah. yes although Labour politicians use it in terms of the the aphorism we will not pass by or we will not walk by or we will not go on the other side of the road yeah. that formulation okay. time and time and time again comes up yeah. to define the entire Labour movement itself the right. entire Labour movement is about not passing by on the other side okay. of the road yeah. Yeah. yeah so in terms of the good Samaritan I mean you talked about politicians on left and right um uh, using this, I mean, do, do poli- just thinking about politicians elsewhere in the world. I mean, American presidents, for example, do they use it, do you, or, or is that something you, you, it's beyond your your scope of study in the book? Is it mainly about British politics? This one, uh, the book's focused on British politics, but American politicians certainly use it. It was interestingly the favourite parable of George W. Bush. Mm. Mm. who um, I mean, didn't base his uh, early kind of welfare policy on it. That's obviously much of an exaggeration. But the principle of um, mutual help I suppose was yeah. that which he wanted to encourage and he referenced mm. it famously it's used by Martin Luther King yeah. um, in his great speech in Memphis Tennessee mm. um, when he talks about you know, making his promised land he talks about his wife yeah, okay. and he having been in the area and, and, and he talks about um, the influence that the, the parable had on him so it's used as you would okay. kind of expect a bit more yeah. in American politics yeah yeah, yeah sure so but, but as you say in American politics you might expect it because you kind of need to present yourself in some way as a Christian in American politics in a way that you don't in the UK. 
Um, here, we're much more wary of politicians getting involved in, 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 in politics. And yet, it's surprising that it is used. This sort of, you know, deeply biblical text, the story of Jesus is used by by British politicians. And, and uh, I mean, uh, I might have a guess at this, but but I guess, as you say, it's used in different ways by people on the left and the right. But could you to explain a little bit about how they how different politicians from different sides of the political spectrum use the parable, what bits they emphasise and how it's played out in, in those different different perspectives. So the best way of looking at it is the use on the right and use on the left. Thatcher dominates the use on the right because she mainstreamed it and she had tended to have two interpretations of the parable. They're quite eccentric interpretations but she kept on coming back to them. The first is that the Good Samaritan didn't just have good intentions, he had possessions as well. Yeah. And he wouldn't have made the impact that he did make, he wouldn't have been able to help, had he not been able, been in a position, material position, to help. So having the means to be able to make sure that the guy to was, pay the innkeeper, was in the to bandage the, the, right, the victim, yeah. yes, and so on yeah. and so forth. The other interpretation she has is that he did it voluntarily. She okay. famously said in a speech at the end of the 70s, something like, I'm going to misquote, but it's something like, I doubt whether social services would have done as much for the man who fell among the thieves as the Good Samaritan did. Mm. So okay. she uses it yeah. to justify and legitimise and encourage voluntary social activity. As opposed to state-provided as welfare. Opposed to, as opposed to collective. Okay. Yeah. That's right. So it is encouraging a, a kind of ethic of, of mutual care within society as opposed to the state doing it. And therefore, an argument for kind of rowing back on a big state, and 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 you know, welfare is provided by the state. Absolutely, right? absolutely, okay. spot yeah. on. Interestingly, it becomes a bit of an albatross for her. She doesn't mm. quote it deliberately. She's asked about it in in, in her period at number ten, but she doesn't volunteer it. Okay. It doesn't appear on her famous sermon on the mound, yeah. nineteen eighty eight, when she goes and and preaches, which is mm. probably the right word to mm. the um, Church of Scotland. Yep. It's one of the few biblical passages she doesn't quote in that yes. astonishing speech. <laughs> Because people began to throw it back at her a bit and, okay. and, and, and yep. judge her own politics. Yep. And I suspect advisors said to her, just, it's probably safer not to go there. Yeah. But at the same time, it's increasingly appropriated by politicians of the left. Okay. First Blair, then Brown. Yep. Corbyn references it. Yep. They do it in this elusive way. They're not as full on a stature. Very few politicians yeah. ever were. Yeah. But they do it in such a way as to, to, as to legitimise, as to justify getting involved. Okay. Yeah. So we as will, the state. As the state. And okay. the agent there is not the individual, it's the state, state yeah. it's us. It's okay. a corporate endeavour. So in this interpretation, the Good Samaritan is the state who has a responsibility to, the, to those who have fallen on hard times, who have, in the metaphorical gutter, and who need help. And the state comes along and provides the wherewithal to get them back up on their feet and to get them reintegrated into society as the man in the story. Yeah is lifted up, taken to the inn, looked after, and then sent on his way again. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of, I mean, you've got two very different interpretations there, one focusing upon individual voluntary support, the other focusing on sort of state welfare. Um, uh, one focusing upon, you know, you, should, you, know, you, you don't, um, you know, the importance of uh, the Good Samaritan having the wherewithal to be able to support the man in trouble, the other one, uh, emphasizing, you know, not walking by on the other side. Um, I mean, standing back from those two interpretations and actually looking at the parable in its first century context, um, which one's right? <laughs> well, of course, Graham, it does depend on whether this episode is going out to an election period, because if it is, I've got to say both of them are in exactly 50% proportions. Yeah. Um, the serious answer to the question is it depends on what the parable means. Mm. And that is a very interesting question mm. because it's it's 
operates on so many different levels. Mm-hmm. So here, here, here's just a few. Uh, so many of the stories do. They're, they're extraordinarily rich stories. And, and yeah. It's, it's yeah. a brilliant miniature. It's about 100 words in yeah. the Greek. It's extraordinarily vivid and sophisticated. Mm-hmm. You could interpret the parable as being about ethnic division and not yep. allowing ethnic division to prevent your ethical duties. Yep. But ethnic division was also, in this instance, religious division between Israelites and Samaritans. Yep. So an interpretation is don't let religious differences get in the way of the ethical duties. Yep. Yep. That religious difference is actually, specifically in the context, a difference about how you interpret the law. So there are a lot of interpretations that say this is a familiar first century um, uh, halakhic debate. It's a debate about how you interpret the law and particularly the question which ethical duty or religious duty is more important, helping somebody or remaining ritually clean. Yeah. As is the issue for the the, the Levites in, in particular, and I guess, you know, or the, um, you know, who, who wants to re- remain ritually clean by not touching this wounded, bruised, bloodied man at the side of the road. And, and interestingly... able to go to the temple and not have to go through the ritual purification. Absolutely. And the interesting thing is that the parable doesn't use the word wounded or bloodied. It uses the word half dead. Okay, I right. think it's the yeah. only time yeah. in the New Testament in which that word is used. And it's a very carefully chosen word because if it's a mm. dead body... Yeah. It steers your ethical responsibilities in a certain way. Yeah. If it's a live body, mm. you're actually mandated to help yeah. it, help yeah. the help the person. Yeah, sure. But you don't know. Yeah. So which responsibility so takes precedence? The figures coming towards and seeing this body by the side of the road don't know whether it's dead or alive, and that that raises the issue. Play safe. I won't go near it yep. because it might be dead. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so it's about it's a halakhic like debate yeah. rather than he in, in some is ways. It in that way, it, exactly. That's right. That's yeah. the question. Yeah. Um, but if it's a debate about the interpretation of the law, it's also therefore an interpretation about the position and role of Israel. Like so mm-hmm. many of Jesus's parables, mm-hmm. is Israel fulfilling God's law, God's call yep. to mm-hmm. her? Um, it's also, though, fascinatingly, it's one of the few, possibly only, parables that's situated in a wider encounter. A teacher of the law who wants to catch Jesus out. It's a parable about yeah. the law. Mm-hmm. He asks Jesus about interpreting the law. And Jesus' final response is, go and do likewise. Yeah. Yeah. So you can interpret it as, stop passing your moral responsibilities. Just go and act. Yeah. 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 Um, and the last, and I think one of the most fascinating interpretations of it, is that the lawyer wants to know who is my neighbour. Mm. In other words, yeah. I'm the moral agent. That my neighbour is that's the recipient. That's where the parable starts. Yeah, with that question, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. Who is who is my neighbour? I want yeah. to know yeah. who who my neighbour is. To whom should I exercise my yeah. moral largesse, my moral responsibility? Mm-hmm. Jesus's response right at the end is. Who was a neighbour yeah. to the man in need? In yeah. other words, the neighbour becomes the moral agent. And it's not actually about you giving care to other people. Yeah. It's about you being willing to receive it, yeah, which sure. is sometimes all the more challengingly. So it operates on so many different levels. Yeah, OK. And give, given that sort of complexity, the multi-layered nature of the, of the story, I mean, applying that back to the, the different interpretations we get from left and right, different politicians using it... Um, I mean, do you find yourself kind of warming to one or the other? Do you find yourself actually increasingly having a critique of both, if you like, that both of them don't quite get the complexity and the richness of this story? Uh, undoubtedly, that is the case. And we shouldn't berate them for that because these are yeah. politicians who are, quote unquote, hijacking a parable yeah. rather than exegeting it. Yeah. I think there are real life problems on both both sides. You know, Thatcher, in a sense, on the one hand, gets the real 
serious moral call of the parable right. Mm. But her interpretation of it as a purely individualistic response mm -hmm. and one that is dependent on material well-being, I think misses the point. On the left, I think that they rightly get the fact that the moral call is not simply individualistic but, but, but wider, it's collective. But the way it is frequently interpreted is to mean you need to... You need to do something. You just need to act. And there's a rather lovely example of this, if I can beg your indulgence briefly. Yeah. This is in the famous Should We Bomb Syria debate that happened in 2015, mm -hmm. 16 or so. Line-hour debate. Hillary Benn gives this barnstorming speech right at the end in which he references the parable of the Good Samaritan mm. and turning to his own side, his own Labour side, says, we believe we have a responsibility to one another. We never have and never should walk by on the other side of the road. Mm. Following day in The Guardian, the, 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 the comedian David Mitchell wrote a rather good piece in which he said, Hillary Benn has quite a robust interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan. In his version, the Samaritan doesn't just help the traveller who's been mugged, he volunteers to seek out and blow the living daylights out of the poor chap's assailants, <laughs> despite the obvious practical yeah. difficulties of not knowing who they are or track, be able to track them down. Yeah. Now, it's quite a witty response, but it's making the point that if you just interpret it to mean we should jolly well go and do something, yeah. you lose any sight of what it is you should be sure. doing. Yeah, yeah. And I guess... A, the, I mean, a difficulty with a lot of the interpretation of the, of the parable is, I suppose, that um, what is it told by Jesus? But it can seem like a, a bit of sort of slightly abstract moral advice. You know, well, you know, help people in need. Well, we, we, we kind of all know that. We don't need a parable to, to tell us that. And I suppose, that, you know, just drawing back from it, the significance of, of, um, uh, of Jesus in this story, uh, not just the fact that he tells it, but what is it saying about the kingdom of God? What is it saying about um, about the ministry of Jesus? So, you know, one interpretation of the story has, has often been um, that the Good Samaritan himself is Jesus. You know, he is the one who comes alongside us in our need, in our brokenness, in our, you know, the sort of tragedies we find ourselves, you know, we, you know, we, to the extent to which we are the victims or different people are the victims. And he, you know, he is the one who comes and bandages our, our wounds and lifts us up and brings us into the, um, you know, so I mean, Augustine had the, the interpretation, you know, the, the inn and the two denarii is the sacraments and all that kind of thing as well, which, which in some ways is a more kind of Christological interpretation of the, of the parable. And I suppose the two versions that we get from left and right seem to slightly take Jesus out of the picture. And I'm not necessarily that, so saying that, you know, the Good Samaritan equals Jesus is necessarily the right interpretation, but at least it is one that takes seriously the, the significance of Jesus as the person who tells the story. But more than that, it's telling something about the nature of salvation, the nature of, of, uh, of, of redemption, rather than just a little bit of moral advice. That's true. I read, you're right, I mean, the, the Church Fathers went for that Christological yeah. interpretation. And um, at first reading, particularly if you go into the, I mean, I think Augustine, we have at least five, I think, interpretations he has of the parable. And they mm. kind of seem to grow in their length and complexity yeah. so that every single detail is yeah. allegorized. Yeah. And you read them and think, this is just potting. <laughs> but what they do get is that point I made about the reversing of moral agency. Yeah. And very often this parable is used to bolster my moral agency. I want to know who is my neighbor, yeah. to whom should I give my, yep. my 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 yep. my my, tier, my 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 resources, my care, my responsibility, and so on and so forth. That Christological interpretation places us in the ditch. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, we are the recipients of help, not the not the the great givers of. We are and assistance. Yeah, and this and this is a really telling point because it can be very demanding to be good to others, particularly those who are very different to you, or even more so than those you hate. Mm. But if you are, if you do that, you nonetheless you do feel good about yourself. You do feel rewarded, accepting help from other yeah. people and accepting help from those who you don't know or you don't like is an extraordinarily kind of humbling mm. experience you can't stay on your moral high horse yeah. if you're in the ditch by the side of the road yeah. so i think that that church father's interpretation i don't think it's an accurate reading of what jesus is going on about mm. but i think it's a it's a disturbing and in one sense helpful one and in your reflection on the the story and i guess in the writing of the book you've um, you've reflected not just on different politicians use of the story but the story itself in its different um layers of complexity i mean it i mean the, at the end of the day what what do you kind of what strikes you what what hits home to you as the sort of central meaning of this story and did you come to a particular interpretation of it that um transcends the different views from left and right and do you do you, do you, do you arrive at something which is a you know this is what i think the story is about uh no i don't and I don't because it's a story. I think if I arrive anywhere, it's at this point that Jesus tells stories. He doesn't come up with Wittgenstein-like propositions. Mm, yeah. um, st- stories are, good stories at least, are of their nature. They're, they're multivo- multivocal. Yeah. That you hear them in lots of different ways. Those different interpretations I read are, are all, I think, in their own way legitimate. Mm. And as such, to pin the story down is to stop it from being a story. Yep. Um, I, I think it, it allows it to remain alive, and in remaining alive, it allows it to pass judgment on those who seek to use it. As soon as you say, you know, it's got a single meaning, it, it, it dies a bit. Yeah, so the purpose of the parables in some ways is to, is actually in some ways to start a conversation, it's to start a kind of process of discovery, it's to draw you into the story, the characters of the story, rather than to give you a nice, neat moral lesson this is what you need to do, or this is the way things are. It's actually a, 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 it draws you into the whole world of this story to explore it and and to shake up your own view of the world by giving you a different one. Is that is that the kind of? I think that's partly it. Yes, yeah. and it, and also it won't leave you alone. I think there's a slight danger with the idea that what does this story mean? We've got the meaning right. Slot that into our yeah. mental let's, um, let's landscape on. and then, and then move, move on. Yeah, yeah. And we all do that, and you can't help but do that, mm. of course. Mm. But what the parable, and parables and good stories as a rule do is refuse to let you do that. And they're always calling you back and, 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 and refusing to be epitomised and grasped and, 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 and categorised yeah. in, yeah. in an easy way. Which is explain something about why the stories of Jesus are still being talked about today, two thousand years after they were there. If they were kind of nice, neat story with one little epigram that you could, you, you don't need the story. Yep. You just got the the statement. Yeah. Um, but you don't, you don't, you don't get that. I mean, I, I, so one area I did want to explore with you a little bit is um, the the dimension of the story which talks about ethnic division. You know, here is a Samaritan helping a a Jew for whom Samaritans are unclean, they're, they're not part of the family of God, they're kind of, you know, um, they're kind of distant relations of the Jewish nation, but they, they, they worship in the wrong way and in the wrong place and all that kind of thing. Um, and uh, obviously, you know, we're, we're at the moment right in the middle of um, 
Uh, Brexit is a process here in the UK which has raised these questions of ethnicity, identity, um, our relationship with the wider world, the the local and the universal. Um, and I suppose my, my question is what what and, and it struck me that the parable of the Good Samaritan has been used quite a lot in the Brexit story. I, I've I've read as well. You know, people asking that question: Who is my neighbour? Um, maybe that's just within the church, but I've heard a lot of talks on Brexit. You know, talks about you know well, who is my neighbour? You know, is my neighbour my immediate friend in my in my kind of locality, or is it my European neighbour, or is it my neighbour in Syria or in in North Africa who needs a um, a, a place to stay because they've they're economic or or, um, or migrants of other kinds. So, I, you know, is there a is there a, a way into that? What what do you think the parable of the Good Samaritan might have to say to the Brexit um, debate that we're in right now and uh, how we address it? Uh, off the top of my head, there are two things that uh, occur to me. Um, one is obvious and the other is unhelpful. <laughs> um, the obvious one is that what it's saying to you is that you don't tribalise. Yeah. And we, we have tribalised um, wonderfully in the last you know, num- number of years, so both politically, internally, and to some people kind of internationally as well. Mm. Um, it's obviously saying don't tribalise. Don't let apparent ethnic or religious divisions... Um, be your kind of cut-off point for any ethical or emotional responsibility you have for other people. But I think what the parable also says, and this is why it's unhelpful, is that you could interpret it, I think legitimately, as to say, my neighbour is the one of whose uh, ethical needs I become aware. Mm -hmm. I'm walking down the road and and this is at least one interpretation of it, that person is my neighbour because I become aware of their need. And therefore, we will sweep aside other differences, and I will act, or I should act at least, to try and relieve those needs. So the bond that is created between the two characters in the story is the, is, is the need, rather than any, eth- any ethnic identity or whatever else. It I is. think that's one of the very interesting things. Yeah. You know, we have we have about ten words on the priest, ten words on the Levite, and about sixty words on the mm. Samaritan. It goes yeah. into a great deal of detail. But at nowhere does it suggest that it is anything other than actually seeing this guy lying yeah. by the side of the road that motivates the Samaritan to do mm. what he does. Yeah. So there's no pre-existing bond there. The yeah. only exist, the only I've become aware of your need yeah. as a fellow human being, as opposed to as a fellow Jew or a fellow man or a fellow yeah. um, traveller or whatever else. This is a fellow pa- human being yeah. who is in desperate need yeah. and, and therefore and, is my neighbour. And if you bolt on as you talk about the church father's interpretation on it, you also see it as a parable in which I become aware of my need because yep. I'm in the yep. gutter. Sure. So you have this bond of need. But why that's unhelpful is that for the vast majority of human history, there would be a relatively limited number of needs of which you could become aware because of the communities in which we live. I am now, you are, we are all acutely aware of the excruciating need of people in Syria. Yep. or Myanmar or, or whatever it is and there's the danger then that you so become so overwhelmed with yep. your awareness of people's needs mm. that you end up saying too much enough I can't yep. I can't yep. I can't respond mm-hmm. so it, it does challenge us like that but in challenging us in our globalized environment is a challenge yep. itself yeah which then perhaps brings you back to the question of well given the the resources background knowledge awareness that I have, or you have, what is the particular bit of need in the world that, if you put it in this way, God is calling me to, to, to address? I can't address all of it, but, but that isn't an excuse to address none of it. 
there may be a particular part of it, and that may be conditioned by, again, you know, what 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 resources background I have. Um, but it's make doing that act of discernment as to what comes first and foremost in, into into your attention. And, and, and there is a kind of a Nike element to the story as well. There's a just do it yeah. element yeah. too. There's yeah. uh, who is my neighbour? Well, we can pass this, we can discuss it, yeah. go and do. Yeah. And if, if there is a punchline, it is that last bit, mm. go and do there likewise. Mm. Um, if you feel like, you know, if, if, if there is a, a, a final point that says that's what it's that's what it's about. Mm. Um, and, and, and more generally, I guess the... Uh, the other question the book the book raises is is the whole relationship between religion and politics because of course one one way of approaching religion and politics is literally is that we don't do God approach which is simply that you know we just don't talk about that at all uh, although this is a really interesting example of politicians actually doing God um, in a sort of strange way but the story maybe maybe they feel they aren't doing God but they're relating to it in some way but I mean is this um, what did this the exercise of writing this book what did it cause you to reflect upon about that relationship between religion and, and politics uh, and and the attempt to somehow divide them as if actually they've got nothing to do with one another and, and religious people should stay out of politics and politicians should stay out of religion um great question there are three answers uh, that really leapt out to me from reading from reading the parable and writing the book um the first is to pick up a phrase that Ray williams has used about our culture being haunted by christianity i went through an awful lot of hansard um to write the book mm. um, it's, gripping, well it's gripping stuff <laughs> I, I, I warn you um, scriptures are quoted referenced an awful lot mm. vastly more than any other of what I call in the book texts of authority so either holy texts of authority mm. such as the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita or secular texts of authority mm. like uh, Mao's Red Book or mm. Das Kapital or the Communist Manifesto um, the only thing that even comes vaguely close is Shakespeare, and even that is mm. is, is nowhere near yeah. close. Mm. So you know there is Eliot. T.S. Eliot said at one point, a, a culture does not stop becoming Christian until and unless it positively becomes something else. Yeah. Mm. Our culture has most emphatically not positively become something else. We are still steeped in Christianity. Mm. First point. Second point I think is fascinating is that there's been a very popular argument of political philosophy for the last 50 years or so about stripping out all comprehensive moral and religious doctrines and, and language from our public discourse mm. because for me as a religious person to speak about my religious beliefs in public, particularly if I'm a representative, would be to disrespect you as a non-religious person because you don't share those beliefs. Mm. We need really to appropriate a, a, a public language, a common public reasoning. This is an argument associated with the late philosopher John Rawls. Yep. Um, well, actually, most lots of politicians do draw on this mm. actually quite contentious and debatable mm. religious language, and they do so not problematically, quite positively. Fascinatingly, Rawls actually uses the parable of the Good Samaritan in mm. his late essay mm. about public reasoning. Um, I think what the parable shows here is that you can do it. It's not disrespecting other people. Mm. It's mm. a proper use of the richness of our cultural traditions, our background cultural traditions, within political discourse. Mm. Third point, really briefly, is why. You know, if you're a Labour politician, why do you talk about going, not walking past on the other side? Why not say we want to help them? Why not say we're going to... Mm just reach out and, 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 and you know, spend more money and increase our budget. I think it's because politicians want their public 
oratory to have some moral depth to them. Mm. And you do that by quoting the Bible or, you know, quoting other deep moral or existential texts. Mm. Nobody wants a kind of a grey-washed, dry, utterly reasonable but anemic public language. Mm. We reach for these texts because they're saying something deep and profound about our moral responsibility to one another. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, this, the use of this story testifies to the enduring power of the Christian story as a whole, as shaping our culture, our political life, our social life, um, but also the, the, the kind of vivid nature of these stories and their ability to continue to speak into quite very different social and political situations than the one it was spoken into Kind of yeah. in, 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 in its, its original context. And our overwhelming need for politics that has moral depth. Yeah. Nick, thank you so much. It's been um, fascinating to, to um, explore this whole uh, issue. If you... Um if by any chance you don't know the story of the Good Samaritan, you might want to look it up in Luke chapter 10. That's where you find it in the New Testament, um, just in case. But uh, if you uh, do know the story and you'd love to read the book, it is called The Political Samaritan, How Power Hijacked a Parable by Nick Spencer, published by Bloomsbury. And um, this version I've got here is £12.99. Available sure, it's cheap on Amazon, but don't buy it from Amazon. Buy exactly, it from a bookshop. That's right, that's right. buy a bookshop. So, um, Nick, thank you so much for uh, coming in and being part of um, GodPod. I'm sure we'll invite you again, hopefully before seven years has passed, <laughs> passed by. But um, uh, So that is GodPod for this time, and I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. And then we'll be back again with another episode before too long. Godpod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. 